almost at the end of your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 5. <clears throat> We've been working our way through the book of 1 Peter ever since last October. <clears throat> And we finally arrived at Peter's closing <coughs> comments, his closing admonition to this first epistle. <coughs> Welcome, Brother Jim. <coughs> and I hope that we're going to continue into Second Peter next, unless something more pressing arises. <coughs> but for the last three weeks, we've taken a kind of a side excursion into the... <coughs> pardon me. A lot of raspy throat this morning. Taking a side excursion into the teaching regarding elders and church leadership. <clears throat> it wasn't all from 1 Peter, but it springboarded from there because in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, that is what he's talking about. So we took the time to go sideways into 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 8, Titus 1, 5 through 9, uh, Ezekiel 34, 1 through 10, and so forth. <clears throat> talking about the job responsibilities and the job requirements and the prerequisites for elders and other church leaders. <clears throat> uh, now I realize that a preacher in this generation, in this, this age, church age, a prophet in this age is supposed to speak to exhortation, edification, and comfort. I'm primarily a teacher, as most of you know, so it's kind of a stretch for me to think admonition and comfort, uh, you know, or edification and comfort. I'm primarily just teaching, but <clears throat> I, I constantly try to remember to make it also something that touches the hearts of the people. <clears throat> Some people are more gifted towards preaching and reaching the hearts. Brother Rick uh, Flemmer is really good at that. He's really gifted at that. <clears throat> um, we need those kind of people. So, I ask your forbearance. Perhaps the teaching will also be to your encouragement. <clears throat> However, as we approach this last passage, I have to confess right off the bat that the very first sentence in it, I don't even know what it's talking about. <clears throat> we'll, I'll read through the last few verses here. <clears throat> Starting in verse 5, it says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares <clears throat> upon him, for he careth for you. <clears throat> be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. <clears throat> but the God of all grace, who has called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, <clears throat> a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose, I have written unto you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. The church that is at Babylon, <clears throat> elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus, my son. Greet you one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you that are all, uh, peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> so we're going to 
finish up First Peter today. When I said this first phrase, I'm not sure what it's even talking about. <clears throat> there are a lot of people that would use this phrase, likewise, ye younger be subject unto the elders, <clears throat> to try to grab for themselves authority over anybody that's younger than them. They, oh, you're younger than me, you're supposed to submit to me. Um, well, the very next sentence kind of gives that the lie. That's not what it's talking about, because the very next sentence says, yes, all of you be subject one to another. <clears throat> And the kind of person that would say, well, you're younger than me, you're supposed to submit to me, would not say, I'm older than you, but in spite of that, I'm going to submit myself to you. <clears throat> really? Okay, well, then you're not reading the scripture for what it says. Um, it may mean, it could mean that, that all people are supposed to submit to the elders of the church. Well, it's not, I don't think, what it says either, because it's comparing <clears throat> two ideas, younger and older. <clears throat> Um, I think that in general, younger people ought to be able to look up to and get teaching from, con um, confirmation from, whatever, affirmation from older people. Uh, it's not always the case. There are those to whom the years bring only age, not wisdom. <clears throat> That's why we have this phrase in our culture that says there's no fool like an old fool. Because there are people that have refused to learn wisdom over the years, and all they did is get old. Okay, that's true. <clears throat> so he has just been talking to the elders of the church and how they're supposed to provide an example for the believers. <clears throat> what we saw in, in verse 3 says that these elders are not to be lords over God's heritage, but be examples to the flock. So maybe, <clears throat> verse 5 is only reflecting back on that. I kind of lean toward that. That that if you're in the younger place where you're growing into positions of leadership and responsibility and so forth, look up to those that are ahead of you. <clears throat> Learn from their example. Maybe that's what it is. But I do know that <clears throat> this verse introduces what seems to be the key idea in the whole rest of the passage, humility. So if I read it in that sense, he says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. <clears throat> that kind of introduces the whole passage in the framework of humility, that all of us would be subject one to another. This is not just a hierarchy of authority <clears throat> like a lot of people would like it to be. We're all to be clothed with humility. We're going to talk about this word clothed. It's not, it, this is the only place in the scripture this particular word is used. <clears throat> it's a little different than other passages that deal with clothing. He goes on to say that God resists the proud and give grace to the humble. And after that it says to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt us <clears throat> in due time. So don't be looking for Authority. Don't be trying to raise yourself up. Put yourself in a position of authority. Look for service. Look for a way to look for what, what does God want me to do? How does he want me to serve him? How, do, how can I serve those around me? And if it turns out that he puts you in a position of responsibility and authority, fine, so be it. But all, if all it results in is that I get to serve, then great. Because that's what it's about. Jesus said he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Okay. So we're going to follow his example and learn this, <clears throat> this concept of humility. 
Remember Joseph, the patriarch. Not, not Joseph, Jesus' adopted father. Joseph, the patriarch. He submitted himself as a slave, having been sold into slavery by his brothers. He was totally wronged by them. And yet he submitted himself as a slave, was accused of a crime he didn't commit, got thrown in prison and submitted himself there. Still not protesting, but submitting himself to God's hand, knowing that God had him slated for something better. Why? Because God had told him in, in advance. Got great things for you. So he submitted himself to God and allowed God to bring it about in his timing. He was 17 when he was kidnapped and sold as a slave <clears throat> by his elder brothers, and 30 when he got out of prison and went straight into Pharaoh's court and served the rest of his life there for decades still faithfully serving. <clears throat> he submitted himself to God, which is the essence of humility. Humility doesn't mean walking around with a hangdog expression on your face and saying, oh, I'm no good. That's not humility. That's false humility. Humility means putting yourself where God wants you and doing what he wants you to do. It means submitting yourself to God. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> so let's look at that word clothed. This is the only passage is used in the Greek word is ekombumai, eg, e-g, kom, k-o-m, bumai, weird word, and it literally means to bind upon yourself. So it's, it's not like the difference between being clothed and being unclothed. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, <clears throat> excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4, it talks about that when we as believers die, we're not unclothed, we don't suddenly we're a spirit without a body. They buried the body, where's the spirit? Well, it's just floating around in limbo. No, it's not. God says we are to, we're not going to be unclothed. We are clothed upon by God at that point. That, yes, we're waiting for our physical bodies to be resurrected. It'll happen at the same time as the rapture. If we're alive when the rapture happens, we go straight into God's presence, and our bodies change right then. That's what 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52 is about. <clears throat> but in... 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4, it talks about those who die before the rapture. There is some sort of body that God clothes them with until the rapture when their physical body is resurrected. If you were to dig up my mom's grave right now, you'd find her worn-out old body. But if you did it five minutes after the rapture, you'd find an empty box because that body is going to be resurrected. <clears throat> so... God says we'll be clothed upon. Well, that's a different word. That's the word that we get endued from. In fact, the Greek word is enduo. Um, we're going to be clothed upon by God. <clears throat> but this word, ekumbomai, means to bind upon oneself. And apparently has the idea of binding on like a, like a uniform, putting on for a particular purpose. <clears throat> so it could be possibly seen as uh, maybe the final part of the armor of God, <clears throat> maybe, or maybe more appropriately, the uniform of God's armor, that we're to be clothed in humility. <clears throat> we're not to be proud. We're not to be holding ourselves up as holier than thou or anything else. <clears throat> we're to be clothed upon deliberately. We're to put on humility. We're to choose it. We're to embrace it. We're to dress ourselves in it. Several reasons why. One is that if we choose humility now, we choose humility, 
now, not seeking to place ourselves more highly than God may want us, and not also not looking down on anybody else for any reason. Then it says, he will raise us to our proper status, <clears throat> our proper station at the appropriate time, just as he did Joseph. <clears throat> Joseph didn't look down on the other prisoners in the prison. He served them. He took care of them. He didn't look down on the other servants in Potiphar's house. He served, did what he was supposed to be doing. And the God says he'll raise us up just as he did Joseph. Now, in contrast, it also says on a day-by-day basis, <clears throat> we can see if we indulge our pride and self-will, if I'm living by self-direction, then it says God's going to resist me. He's going to trip me up. He's going to see to it that my ideas don't work out as well as I hoped they would. <clears throat> it says that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. So if I choose humility, as he says, then he will supply us with his grace <clears throat> within which to live. This is not about his grace and salvation. This is about the daily living grace that we need in order to walk with Jesus. <clears throat> If we're going to walk with Jesus, we have to walk in humility, not self-will. We're going to talk about that some more in a minute. But there's another reason to choose humility. It's extremely practical for the here and now. If you'll hold your finger here in 1 Peter, turn back to your left just a bit to James <clears throat> chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. James and Peter are not only in agreement, as is the whole Bible, <clears throat> but in this particular passage, they're almost word for word saying the same thing. <clears throat> in James chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, speaking of God, it says, He giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then he says, why? He says, submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Okay, I, that'd be a good reason to submit yourself to God. We, when we were studying through James, you may remember we talked about the fact that a coyote isn't particularly afraid of horses as a general rule. I mean, they're too big for him to take down as prey, uh, and he's not going to get in their way because they're big enough to stomp him, but coyotes faster. Uh, they just don't, they don't get in each other's way. A horse isn't afraid of a coyote particularly. A coyote isn't afraid of a horse particularly. But if you put a human being on a horse's back, then the coyote is afraid. Why? Because when the horse is subject to the, yeah, when the horse is subject to the human, the coyote recognizes the human as a dangerous thing. They carry guns, and the coyote recognizes that the, the horse with a human on its back is dangerous. Well, if God's in the saddle, so to speak, then yeah, you are dangerous to Satan. If you're not in submission to God, there isn't anything you can do or say that makes a bit of difference to the evil one. He doesn't care about you. He's not afraid of you. Burn a candle? So what? Burn some more wax. I don't care. See, there are people that get the idea they can, you know, make a cross or they can burn a candle or they can do something, go through some kind of format. They'll scare off the devil. No, it won't. Light dispels darkness. But see, burning a candle isn't the kind of light that dispels the darkness that Satan is ruling over. It's the moral darkness and the, the spiritual darkness and the mental darkness of, <clears throat> of his kingdom that we're seeing as an adversary. And the only light we have that, that opposes that light, that darkness, is God's light. And if God can shine through you, then yeah, Satan's going to flee before you. 
if you're in submission to God, if God's in the saddle, then that coyote, the devil, is going to flee from you. Otherwise, no. He's, in fact, we're going to see he's not just a coyote. We're going to see that he's a lion walking about, roaring, seeking whom he may devour. <clears throat> Turn back to <clears throat> 1 Peter chapter 5. <clears throat> Verse 6, he says, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. So we see that part of humbling ourselves under the hand of God is that we are to cast our cares on him. If we're reluctant to do so, we think, well, that's too little to pray to pray about. Or, no, I can take care of this. I don't need to ask God's help. Oh, what are we doing then? I'm declaring myself to be the one in the driver's seat. God's not on the saddle. See, I'm declaring myself to be self-sufficient. If I think, no, I don't, I don't need God's help for this, I got it, <clears throat> then I'm declaring myself to be the one in control. <clears throat> okay, when, when God told Paul, remember Paul prayed for healing for something, we don't know what it was, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse, verses 9 and 10, it says that he had this thing, a... It says a thorn in his flesh. We think it was probably an eye disease uh, because there's several passages where it mentions problems with his eyes. <clears throat> uh, and he prayed for God to heal it. Now here's Paul, the Apostle Paul, the guy that could heal everybody. And God told him to quit praying for that. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. So how did Paul respond? Oh, well, I guess I just have to take care of it on my own then. No. No, he submitted himself willingness, willingly to the authority of God, that God said, this is my will for you. So instead of keeping on trying to squirm out of it some way or make himself a martyr and say, oh, I'll just have to suffer then. No, he, he willingly, cheerfully submitted himself to God's plan and says that this is God's grace to me. This is, God's grace is sufficient for me in this Malady, whatever it was. We're not sure what caused it. He got stoned heavily at Lystra. Back then when they say people got stoned, they meant real rocks, not like we do today when people get stoned. Uh, he got a terrible beating with rocks at Lystra, and it may have affected his vision. Uh, there was other things. There was a particular eye infection that was real common to that area. It could have been simply that. I don't know. <clears throat> but there's several passages that mention that his eyes were going bad. And we'll talk about that again in a bit, too. He submitted himself cheerfully and willingly to God. That is the essence of humility. Okay. But then Peter went on to describe our active enemy, the devil, and says we're to resist him. He says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, unlike the skulking coyote, like a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour, whom... Resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. We're to take this fight seriously, not lightly, with sobriety, not silliness. <clears throat> he says that we're to be sober, be vigilant, be watchful, not lax. If you even think that an enemy of some sort, a physical enemy, uh, maybe a predator, uh, there was a pastor's wife up on the hill at Hillside Bible Church, uh, a few years ago, went riding on her horse and suddenly realized she could see a, a uh, cougar, mountain lion, 
stalking her and the horse. And she booked it for home and asked her husband for a scabbard for her saddle that would hold a 30-30. And uh, figured she wasn't going back riding in that particular patch of woods without a way to scare off the cat. So if you think that an enemy may be around, you're extra watchful. You're paying attention and, and keeping an eye because you're looking out for a sneak attack. Well, we don't just think that an enemy might be around. God's told us he's here, and he's invisible, and he's powerful, and he's deadly. He can't take you away from Jesus, but he can take away your peace and your, your feeling of security and your, your joy if he can get you, if he can lead you into a position of unbelief. If he can get you to a point where you're not trusting in Jesus to, to, for your day-by-day -day walk, if you're not in submission to him, God's not in the saddle, then you don't have that peace anymore. You don't have that security. You don't have any joy, and your testimony begins to suffer. So you're not effective for God. <clears throat> he can't take you away, but he can trick you into unbelief. And Peter says that the whole body of Christ is the, your brethren in the world. It says the whole body of, the, of Christ faces the same enemy, and we're to resist him together in the faith as well as individually. We pray for each other as Jesus did for Peter. Peter said that Satan has desired to have thee, Peter. They may sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. Cool. I want Jesus praying for me too. And back in John chapter 17, Verse 20, 21, right in there, we see that God, that Jesus did pray for us in his high priestly prayer. So what about testings and trials, hard things? It'd be easy to think that somehow we ought to escape the testings and trials and hard things, but we're actually told repeatedly that this sort of testing and trial is for the whole body of Christ, that it's part of God's plan for us. <clears throat> and it says that we're to resist Satan. Hebrews 12, 4, uh, yeah, that's right, Hebrews 12, 4, I think, uh, is, yeah, that's correct. Hebrews 12, 4 chides the Hebrew Christians that Paul, or whoever the writer was, was writing to, saying, you have not resisted unto blood, resisting against sin, fighting against sin. He says, you, you haven't gone very far down this road of having to resist sin. It hasn't cost you yet. Okay. This may have been in comparison to the many martyrs that were in Hebrews chapter 11, because they not only resisted unto blood, it cost them their lives. They had all their belongings confiscated. We're worried about our liberal government today. You ever wonder why God compliments liberals in the Bible? You see, in the Bible, liberal meant you're generous with your own belongings. Today, it means you're generous with somebody else's belongings. Okay, but we're worried about our government today. Guess what? Their government was a whole lot worse. A whole lot worse. And it says they cheerfully subjected themselves to that government. It says taking joyfully the, the spoiling of their goods. <clears throat> so we're given three different commands in regards to three different types of testing, trials. One time, kind we're told to resist. We're told to resist sin. In Hebrews 12, 4, it says you've not resisted unto blood yet, fighting against sin. Uh, we're to resist Satan. James 4, 7, we already re read where he says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. And in 1 Peter 5, 9, he says, whom resists steadfast in the faith, speaking of this adversary as a roaring lion. So that kind of trial, we're to resist. 
One kind of trial, we're to flee, cut and run. What kind is that? Well, the kind of temptation where, he's, where we're being lured away to do evil. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, it told them to flee fornication, flee sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Timothy was warned in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, to flee youthful lusts. Any man here knows exactly what we're talking about. And as a young man, I discovered if I kept my eyes straight ahead, in a few seconds I'd be by whatever that temptation was that I was seeing, whatever that skimpily clad young woman on a summer day was wearing. It, you know, keep driving and just drive straight ahead. In a few seconds, she'll be out of sight. You don't have to crank your head around and run into a telephone pole trying to look at that honey on the street. Okay. Flee youthful lusts. And finally, in 1 Timothy 6, 11, he says, flee temptations. He's named a bunch of temptations. as, But thou, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue after godliness. We're told to flee certain kinds of testing. But the rest of them, we're told to endure. We're told to endure hardship and trials and suffering and injustice and so forth. And that's what we saw in Hebrews chapter 11, that they endured these things. They couldn't flee. They couldn't just pack up and you know, leave the Roman Empire because they had a wicked, terrible Roman emperor. Uh, they had about 10 of them in a row that were flat out crazy. They thought they were gods and so forth, and they heavily, heavily persecuted the church. The church wasn't told to get up and flee the Roman Empire. They were told to endure. It says, Thou therefore endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Endure. <clears throat> uh, Hebrews 10.34 says that they, they cheerfully took the, the spoiling of their goods. They lost everything they owned because they were siding with the Apostle Paul, they lost everything. <clears throat> Hebrews 12.1, he says for us to take Jesus as our example and, and to run with patience the race that is set before us. Taking Jesus as our example who endured the cross for our sake, we endure. In 1 Peter 2.19, he tells that them to hang in there, to endure he says that they're not to take it as a big surprise when things get rough. He says, I don't want you to be surprised at the fiery uh, trial with which you shall be tried. He says, this is, this is common stuff, and you knew, you knew ahead of time it was coming. Suffering is part of the Christian experience, and so forth. Finally, in verse 10, he says, But the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. The word suffered here doesn't mean hurting. It means enduring. When It means allowing it to have its work in your life. When Jesus told John the Baptist, John didn't want to baptize Jesus. You remember that? He says, I have need to be baptized of you. Matthew uh, chapter I forgot to write it down, but Matthew chapter 3, verse 37, I think, is the last part of Matthew chapter 3, right before Jesus went into the desert to be tempted. <clears throat> he says, when Jesus was telling John this is the right thing to do, he says, suffer it to be so for now. He says, suffer it to be so, allow it to be so. It doesn't mean this is going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt me. That's not the kind of suffering he's talking about. Okay. It, it means allow it to be so. 
Baptize me. Go ahead. I know you don't understand why. You'll learn, you'll learn later. Allow it to be so. We don't necessarily understand the trials that we go through, the pain we go through, the, the losses we go through, the grief we go through. But God says, allow it to be so. Suffer it. He says, after you've suffered for a while, he says he'll make you perfect. That doesn't mean sinless perfection. It means he's maturing us. He's making us solid. There's a hardening off process as baby Christians grow up to be grown-up Christians. He says to make us perfect, to establish us, to strengthen us and settle us. <clears throat> Greenhouse plants have to go through what's called a hardening off process where the gardener takes them out into the open air and exposes them to sunlight and so forth for a few a little bit more time each day until they're solid enough that you can plant them in the garden or plant them in the orchard or, or the vineyard or wherever they're going and expect they're not just going to shrivel up and die. Okay. Well, God babies along, baby Christians, but we're supposed to be going through a hardening off process where we grow up and learn to walk with him in spite of and through persecutions, in spite of and through trials and hardships. That's normal. That's part of the Christian life. The, the greenhouse plants wouldn't be strong enough to survive without that. And we have to allow the trials to have their desired effect in our life. As baby Christians, we're not particularly stable. Any strange doctrine or rumor could shake us in our faith. So, well, I saw on the Internet that, you know, and you know, I have people come to me with that kind of stuff all the time. Why? Well, because they didn't have the wherewithal to go to God's Word and say, that is not true. Okay. That's Okay. We understand that. That's how we grow. We have to get those kinds of answers. We get those answers partly through feeding on the Word of God. We try to feed people heavy on God's Word here in this church. You guys have been doing that. You've been feeding on God's Word. You've been growing strong because you're feeding on His Word in varying degrees. Some of you are feeding heavy and studying on your own. Some of you are just getting fed here at church. Some of you in between. That's fine. Well, I understand that. Okay. But we're told to feed on the sincere milk of God's word, that we may grow thereby. We're also told that through the exceeding great and precious promises in his word, that we are to be partakers of the divine nature. God begins to bring out his nature in us today so that the world can see God shining through us. How? It says through the exceeding great and precious promises of his word. Okay. And all of that's true, but part of it also is going through hard times with Jesus. When we walk with Jesus, we go where he goes. When we walk with Jesus, we go where he goes. Okay. And Jesus doesn't often take the easy way. He doesn't take the easy path. We're called to walk with him through those hard times. <clears throat> Peter begins his closing comments in the next few verses. He says, to him, that is to God, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's beginning to close, beginning to offer his benediction to the recipients of the letter, and he begins by glorifying God for his grace, as mentioned in, in verse 10, and the incredible gift of the calling of God. He's called us away from our old life in the darkness of the world, and call us into the light of God. He's called us into the eternal glory and grace of God. And he offers God dominion and glory forever because of that. He's praising God because of where he's already taken us and what we have to look forward to. Now he's starting to say his goodbyes. He says, by Sylvanus, 
a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose, I've written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. Where you already stand in Christ, that is the true grace of God. That's the saving grace of God. What he's been teaching us about is how to inherit the living grace of God on a day-by-day basis. We need his grace to walk. Now, Peter did the same thing as Paul did. He used a scribe to write this letter. Paul did it all the time, probably because of his eyes. There's several passages that talk about Paul's eyes being bad. And the one epistle that we know he wrote himself, physically wrote himself, Galatians, he flat out says, look how big a letters I've had to use writing this letter myself. I mean, they handed him a crayon and a big piece of newspaper to write on because he couldn't see. He couldn't write in small handwriting. He was well-educated. Uh, he, he knew how to write an excellent document, but he couldn't do it anymore. So he had to get somebody else to write for him, usually. Galatians, he wrote on his own. He says, see with what great letters I've written unto you with my own hand. <clears throat> now, Peter, I don't know why he did it. Uh, he, did, he used the scribe this time. His other letter, he didn't say he used the scribe. Maybe he just didn't mention it. Uh, he may have used the scribe because he wasn't particularly skilled as a, as a writer. Uh, you remember in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, the chief priests and the leaders in the temple and so forth were amazed to hear Peter and his partners preaching God's word. They said, how are these unlearned men who have never learned letters, I don't know if that meant they're literally illiterate, or if it means they just they shouldn't be able to talk with this kind of clarity and, and so forth. How'd they learn this? Well, they didn't. This is by revelations from God. So maybe in Peter's case, he just felt like he'd really be better off to hire somebody to, to help. In this case, for whatever reason, he had this guy named Sylvanus, who he thought not only was a believer, but that these people knew him. He says, he's a faithful brother to you, as I suppose. You already know him. And I've used him as the scribe. We don't know why. Don't know anything about the man. This is the only place he's mentioned, as far as I know. But his final word, in verses 13 and 14, he says, the church that's at Babylon elected together with you, salutes you, as does Marcus, my son. It's an interesting salutation there. Several things we get. One is that he's writing and giving greetings from the church at Babylon. And people, some people have assumed, well, he didn't really mean Babylon, he meant Rome. Well, it doesn't say that. It says Babylon. And people say, yeah, but Babylon was destroyed. No, the Babylonian Empire fell, but Babylon was never destroyed properly. It's still there. In fact, the destruction that Isaiah promises in Isaiah chapter 13 is still coming. How do we know? Well, because at the time of Christ, there was still a thriving community in the city of Babylon. It was getting smaller and smaller, primarily because the Euphrates River course kept moving further and further away from Babylon. At the time of Belshazzar, when Daniel was there, the, the Euphrates flowed under Babylon which is why they felt so secure. They had this mighty wall all the way around. The river flowed right through. They had a source of water. And the way the Medes and the Persians got in is they dammed the Euphrates upstream and rerouted it through another course, and they marched under the wall. Well, that was simple. Okay, and they walked right in. They didn't have to break down the walls. They didn't destroy the city. Several kings 
after Babylon fell, lived in and ruled from that city. That wasn't the destruction of Babylon. That was the fall of the Babylonian Empire. So there was a Babylonian church up until this time. Shortly after this, they, they gave up and moved away because they're having to walk like 10 miles to get to water. Okay, that's a bit of a, bit of a hike to get water every day. So <clears throat> they finally just moved out and gave up. Well, now it's being rebuilt again. It's been rebuilt many times. But God says that when it's destroyed, in, in uh, Isaiah 13, he says that when it's destroyed, nobody will ever live there again. Okay, So that hasn't happened yet. When's it going to happen? Apparently during the tribulation. Okay, But it's going to come. They had been a population there and a good church there at one time, and they were sending their greetings to these Jewish believers with whom, to whom Peter was writing. Marcus is probably in, re in reference to John Mark. He was the author of the Gospel of Mark. You remember, he wasn't Peter's literal son. Apparently, they had that sort of relationship, though. You remember that Paul had been so displeased with John Mark's behavior, his unreliability as a young man, that he had refused to work with him anymore. Barnabas, his uncle, Mark's uncle, took, took him under his wing, and raised him up, taught him, and he became a profitable servant of God. He wrote the book of Mark, uh, and Paul later recognized him as fully profitable in the, in the gospel, and Peter saw him as his son. Uh, so apparently he had pretty high regard for him. Finally, he says, Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with all you who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> this word charity... is the King James word for the agape love. Whenever, if he uses that as a verb, he, say, he just uses the word love. They use the word love when they translate it. But to, dis, to differentiate between brotherly love, uh, love between a man and a woman, uh, love for your country or whatever, and the love of God flowing through you, the word charity was used in the, when they when they meant the agape love, the, the love that's an uncom unconditional love, the pouring out of oneself for somebody else. Now, in many of the Oriental cultures and even Eastern Europe, uh, kissing is a formal form of greeting for everybody, men and women. Uh, it has nothing to do with sex. It has nothing to do with that kind of thing. Uh, some of them it's devolved into a kissing the air on both sides of their head. Uh, some of them, it's a kiss on the cheek on both sides. I've been in an old Russian church, uh, church of old Russian believers, and the men kissed each other on the lips when they met. Okay, that's a little freaky for me, coming from the United States, but you need to recognize that there's different forms of greetings in different cultures. The form of the greeting is not what the issue is here. The motive of the greeting is what's the issue. What does it say? The kiss of agape love. They were to care for each other with the agape love. They were to greet one another within that agape love. <clears throat> Disunity is not acceptable with God. If, if I'm ever thinking, well, I don't need you, regarding any other believer, even if I'm only thinking it, let alone saying it, if I'm ever thinking that, I'm wrong. Why? Because back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says that the eye cannot say to the foot, I have no need of thee. I, as, as a member of the body of Christ, I need every other member of the body of Christ. 
You ever notice somebody limping? Why are they doing that? Because it's fun? No, because something's hurting and the rest of their body is working together to try to compensate for the part of the body that's hurting. I told you about smashing my thumb and the whole body turned into a kangaroo as I went hop, hop, hopping into the house to get some ice for that thumb. You know, it might look silly, but that's just, my whole body was reacting that way. It was hurting so bad. I caught my thumb in a heavy door. And uh, the whole body is to look out for one another in that way. As the body of Christ, we're to love one another with the agape love, to be fully committed to one another's good, to one another's blessing. We're not to just give a casual, hey, how's it going? How you doing? And not care. We're to love one another. We're to care for one another. <clears throat> the command that Jesus gave, love one another as I've loved you, that's the law of Christ. That's the... You know, we learn about different rules for living. Well, that's the one that trumps all the others. That if you're doing that one, you're covering all the others. Jesus said so. If that one is missing, if that one is missing, no matter what else we're doing, no matter how look good it looks, if we're not allowing God's agape love to flow through us, then we're not doing what God asked for. We're not walking with the Lord, regardless of what else we're doing. Read 1 Corinthians 13. You'll see how strongly God feels about that. Paul says, if I give up my body to be burned, if I give everything I own to the poor, if I have not love, it profits me nothing. I'm not doing what God called me to do. This is the bottom line. Now, for the last 10 years ago in my, or so in my observation, this little church has done very well in that regard. We've loved one another. You've prayed for one another. You've rejoiced with one another in victories and wept with one another in griefs and shared griefs and losses. God says, well done. Press on. Keep loving one another with the agape love. God says that as we continue to walk with him, we're gonna, we get to have his peace as his gift. He says, peace be with all you that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's go ahead and pray together. Lord Jesus, in these uncertain times, we're constantly desiring your peace. And we see the deep need we have for your guidance, and we desire to walk with you in humble submission to your wisdom. Guide us by your word, protect us by your grace and your power so that we can serve as your witnesses here on earth and be the men and women of God you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.